Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Hans Martin Kramer about his book, Shimaji Mokurai and the Reconception of Religion and the Secular in Modern Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2016. Dr. Kramer is a professor of Japanese studies at the Heidelberg University in Germany. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, Dr. Kramer. So our first question is always biographical. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? And how did you become interested in Japanese history and religion? Thanks, first of all, for giving me the opportunity to uh, present my book, which is not all that new, I think, for the New Books Network. But anyway, um, I really can't say all that much about myself. I have a bit of a boring biography. I was born in Germany, grew up in Germany, went to school in Germany, uh, went to college in Germany, and now I work in Germany. So I'm more of a more or less a monocultural person that you perhaps don't expect any longer these days, but there it is. Um, except for, I guess, my stays abroad, which kind of uh, make my biography a bit more interesting. I did a, a high school year abroad to the U.S. actually, um, uh, during my sophomore year in high school. And that's actually where I encountered Japan in a way for the first time, because this was in the 1980s when uh, the, the threat of Japan as number one was uh, pretty much on the American mind, uh, even to a degree that I, as a high school student, encountered it. And I became interested in that that strange, uh, dangerous country, seemingly dangerous country, Japan, uh, over there across the ocean that was not so much of an issue in, in Germany at that time or Europe. But in, in the U.S., it was, it was certainly there. So I guess that kind of kindled my interest in Japan originally, I think. Um, also, history was really my favorite subject in school. So when I enrolled in university, I did uh, choose history, philosophy, and Japanese studies as, as majors. Um, now, the study program was actually not called Japanese studies, but it was called modern Japan and was quite focused on really you know, modern contemporary Japan and sort of, I guess, in a kind of a late day modernization paradigm way. So there was basically no religion. Uh, religion wasn't wasn't really part of the, of the study program because it didn't help explain mm-hmm. modern Japan <laughs> in that sense. Um, so it wasn't really until I went abroad um, uh, for my undergraduate exchange to Japan in 1996-97 to Sophia University, the famous Jesuit-run university mm-hmm. in Tokyo, that I took courses on a Japanese religion. Uh, namely one on the history of Sophia University, very exciting course taught by wow. Kate, Kate Wildman Nakai, um, where we sort of looked at how the Catholic University fared in 20th century Japan, and another on religion and society in Japan, uh, a broader, broad-range course from sort of ancient period to, to the modern period. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only basically for those that I really became uh, more deeply interested in Japanese religion or the history of Japanese religion, I guess I should say. 
Fascinating. I, I actually took a summer course in Jochi or Sofia Daigaku uh, a few years back. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting that you were there. I'm kind of curious if you could, uh, this is something that I've heard from uh, a few other professors of uh, modern Japan or who focus on religion, is that in the sort of um, history of modern Japan, that religion is sort of uh, peripheralized. Um, I was kind of curious, I, this may be changing now. Uh, I'm kind of curious as somebody who's um, been studying this for a while, what your opinion of why that is the case and how and why that is changing? Right. I actually do have an opinion on that. Um, I think there is in the historiography on modern Japan, or there has been a secularist bias, really, mm-hmm. um, which is understandable if you look at uh, sort of a, a mainstream sele- section of the sources, if you look at the, the political actors, that um, many of them have been really outright secularists uh, you wouldn't really, you wouldn't really uh, go and check, you know, the, the private religious affiliation of this or that prime minister to understand his motivations. I mm. think, in the case of modern Japanese history, which you, you definitely would do in, you know, looking at U.S. presidents, obviously, or say even even German chancellors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is this this inherent secularist bias to writing modern Japanese history um, that I think has been pervading. Uh, the discipline, and I think it does have something to do actually with what I previously mentioned, the, the modernization theory paradigm that's obviously been, been so important for the creation of Japanese studies in, in the post-World War II period and does have repercussions on, up, up until today. And so there has been somewhat of a division. Pre-modernists have been all about religion in a way, um, and, and modern historians at least have pretty much ignored it. And of course, I hope that it is changing uh, it has been certainly changing through the uh, work that has been done on modern uh, Japanese religions, modern Buddhism, especially uh, in recent years in the English language. At least. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, now, getting back to the book, could you tell us about the genesis of this project? What made you want to write about this topic and why did you choose to focus on the figure of Shimaji? Right. So I mentioned the course Religion and Society in Japan I took at Sofia University in 1997. And I actually wrote a term paper on the anachronistic use of shukyo in scholarship on pre-modern Japan. So I was kind of puzzled by so many authors writing about the religious policy of the Tokugawa shogunate when they couldn't have had a religious policy because they didn't even have a word for religion, right? So what, what actually does that mean, religious policy? So I I tried to look at that a bit. Um, That was in 1997. And uh, a few years later, I attended a conference in 2001 on uh, the topic was religion and national identity in the Japanese context. And at that conference, I heard um, a professor from Tokyo, Fuji Takeshi, explain how the term shukyo was actually first coined in a meaningful sense by this guy, Shimaji Mokudai, who I had not heard about before. Um, and I actually tried to locate some source text back then in 2001, but somehow failed. And my attention was actually directed somewhere else because I did a PhD thesis then um, in, in, in those years on an on a t- entirely different topic, uh, not religion related. Uh, it it uh, was entitled in the end, A New Beginning Under U.S. Occupation, Higher Education Reform in Japan Between Continuity and Discontinuity, 1919 through 1952. Uh, which I completed in 2005, was published in 2006. So then for my postdoc project, I returned 
uh, my attention to religion and indeed that vexing problem of the concept of religion. And I finally did manage to find the Shimaji Mokura Zenshu, the collected works, and came to realize that the early Shimaji, so in the 1870s, was really a groundbreaking figure and that although he is mentioned here and there in the, in the literature, uh, also in the English language literature, that there really wasn't all that much about him and he would be a great person to focus on. So this is basically, I kind of started thinking about some of this back in the 1990s, but really only came around to, to working on it uh, much later. And it's finally found uh, fruition as an actually published book in 2015 then. Fascinating. I had no idea about the backstory about the project, so that's fascinating. Um, now, could you explain why you choose reconception in your title rather than, say, translation or invention? Um, this is something you introduce, inter, um, discuss in your introduction. I'm kind of curious about the invention part as well, what your opinion about that is, because you know there's a lot of books that talk about invention, whether it's Tomoko Masuzawa's The Invention of World Religions or Jason and Anna Josephson Storm's um, The Invention of Religion in Japan. And uh, you know, I think there's, uh, for some people, there's an allergic reaction to the term. Um, mm-hmm. Although uh, in my view, many people, uh, people can mean very different things by the term invention. I'm kind of curious about your thought process and your opinion on on this on that term in particular. Yes, uh, it's funny that you should mention uh, Jason Josephson's book title because he was actually really unhappy about the, the title. Of that. The, the publisher basically suggested it to him. Really? Um, okay, I didn't know that. Okay, he really hadn't wanted to write invention. Of course, it kind of hints at the Masazawa book, right? Um, and uh, he he then sort of it explains it away or he kind of fills it with, with a bit of a different uh, really content than what is usually associated I think, with invention. So mm-hmm. he kind of finds his way around it. But invention is really not the best term because obviously there's no creatio ex nihilo going on. You know, it's, it's not invented out, out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so invention, I think, is really uh, quite an infelicitous term here in this context. Translation, in contrast, which you also raised as, a, as an alternative, is of course perhaps the important, most important alternative metaphor, and uh, you know very well established and uh, discussed. And I also use it sometimes, right? Because obviously translation no, not only refers to uh, linguistic uh, translation of say individual words or text, but it can also mean translation of culture or cultural elements. So it's really uh, a quite useful concept, it highlights the, the source and the target, both sides sort of of the translation and the process of getting from source to target, right? So it's really mm-hmm. a good, I think, a good metaphor to work with. Um, and the one I, I toyed around with uh, probably most was, was actually appropriation, um, which uh, again mm-hmm. highlights sort of the, the conscious efforts at, at taking something and then changing it to suit your own needs. So that's a, a part of the process that I, that I tried to emphasize. However, with the, the reconception that I finally went with, I wanted to stress yet another aspect, namely the resources the translators or inventors, as it were, could draw upon, say, the words they chose to translate into, because those were not empty vessels, but of course had previous meanings. And it turns out that in many cases, these previous meanings were really decisive. Um, and this is uh, connected in, in many ways to the post-colonial discussion where, um, you know, indigenous knowledge, uh, to put it sort of in, in, in 
blunt terms, <laughs> plays, mm -hmm. plays a large role. And the, the connection between this, these previous forms of knowledge and then the new knowledge that comes in from the colonizing West and how the two were, were harmonized uh, or brought together. So this sort of forms the background. And I, I, I really wanted to bring in these, this indigenous knowledge and, and the broad meaning. Um, so in the end, what, what I would try to do with reconception is to balance really three factors in this whole uh, transfer of knowledge situation under colonial circumstances. And that is, A, the Western knowledge, which is, of course, really, really important, but it's not uh, all decisive. You know, it's not just Western knowledge being, being transposed. Uh, B, the political and social agendas of the people involved on the Japanese side, um, as I uh, previously mentioned when I, when I explained appropriation there was much going on in in uh you know using this western knowledge to their own ends and three the indigenous traditions and all three really come together in this process of you know inventing translating appropriating reconceiving religion um and certainly this this i think this this idea of how to frame what's going on is not just relevant for religion but you can really use it uh, for, for other, you know, fields, uh, policy areas, social spheres as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, now, we've already discussed uh, Josephson's storm a little bit. So um, my next question sort of follows on from that. Uh, you know, your book comes out on the back of some really exciting scholarship by the likes of Josephson Storm, Isomai Junichi, Trent Maxey, among others, including a lot of scholarship in Japanese, um, on the emergence of religion as a discursive context, uh, concept in the context of Western imperialism and the establishment of the Meiji state. I was wondering if you could tell the listeners what your argument is in this book and how it, uh, and explain how it relates to the existing literature uh, I ju I've just mentioned. Sure. If you'll allow me to go back a little bit here. When I, Absolutely. When I started my postdoc project around 2008, I was actually in the fortunate circumstance that my university back then, which is the uh, University of Bochum in, in, in northern Germany, had a very generous federally funded multi-year project, third-party grant, called something uh, Dynamics in the History of Religions Between Asia and Europe. And what that, what that project entailed, what we, what we did with the grant money was to invite researchers to that place, Bochum, up to 10 people each year. It was really, really lots wow. of money. And I was uh, lucky to be able to invite both Isomai Junichi and Jason Josephson to Bochum. And they came for one year and half a year, respectively. So I really had a very close cooperation with, with both of them. Um, and uh, this, was, this was before, this is after uh, Isomai's book had been out in Japanese. The, the English translation hadn't been published yet. And uh, Jason Josephson was in the process of reviewing his, manu and, excuse me, revising his manuscript for publication. So it was also not yet published. So we had really, really uh, intense discussions about uh, Basically, those manuscripts in work and mine was at a slightly earlier stage. Um, and, you know, you, the, the books you've, you've or the authors you've mentioned, I, I was I'm the last of them, right? They were all a bit bit quicker than I was. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, obviously, we all share at, at a very fundamental level. We share a concern with with language and the importance of the conceptual slash epistemic conditions for politics, broadly conceived. What you just called Western imperialism and the establishment of the Meiji state. Mm -hmm. um, 
And really, especially with uh, Josephson, there is a large overlap between uh, our two projects. Um, I was actually working on quite similar things. I had the whole diplomatic context that he uh, has, a, has a full chapter on. I had that worked out. And so one reason for my focus on Shimaji was, uh, to be entirely honest here, was a bit strategic because I couldn't you know, publish the same book again, obviously. <laughs> yes. right? he, was, he, was, he was just a bit quicker than I was. Um, so I had to pick out something that he really didn't treat adequately. And the, the obvious part for me was in the, the most relevant that he left out was the, the Buddhist inner Buddhist discussion, which is in his book, of course. It's just mm-hmm. not not as much upfront. Um, so uh, this is this is one, one uh, well, it's sort of more superficial <laughs> difference between um, mm-hmm. my book and those others. Uh, my relationship to Isomai is a bit more complicated. Because um, as much as I admire him as a, as a trailblazer in, in many of these issues in the, in the Japanese literature, um, he, he largely follows uh, the notion that pre-1945 Japan is a case of a failed secularization. Um, state Shinto was basically established as a state creed, I think, in, in his, to his mind, um, and um, basically, the, the category of religion was imposed upon Japan as a foreign category that was alien to Japan. It was misunderstood in Japan. Um, and so uh, Shimaji is basically complicit in creating this monster of state Shinto, if you, if you want. And that kind of um, sort of very, very simplistic post-colonial view of Japan as the victim of this epistemic imperialism, I find is not, is not corroborated by the sources, right? Uh, and which is why with, with my concept of reconception, which is what, what I try to capture is uh, the, the, the agendas that the Japanese actors in this story had themselves. Uh, pure, obviously, they were not pure victims of Western imperialism here in this story. And, it's not so much a question of a misunderstanding of a Western of, of a purely Western category, but there's some, if you, if you want, co-construction going on. You know, the Japanese make their own concept of religion, obviously. So, uh, at, at that level, I think there, there are my my main um, differences to uh, Isomai. Uh, of course, Isomai's interest in uh, sort of empirical terms is more in religious studies as an academic discipline, which is a very interesting story. In, in itself, and he's not so much, I think, interested in the, in the religious stakeholders. He has little patience for Buddhism, I think. Um, and so this also sets the two of us apart, I, I, I believe. Great, thank you. Um, okay, so now getting to your introduction, you write, quote, for heuristic purposes, I propose to differentiate between three levels of meaning frequently read into pre-modern as well as modern notions of religion, end quote. Could you describe what these are and how they prove helpful in your analysis? Sure. I mean, this this is something that I didn't come up by my own, obviously. So this the the whole linguistic turn of religious studies has been has been quite broad and not limited to to Asian studies or certainly not Japanese studies. So people have been writing about and uh, problematizing religion as the subject of religious studies now for quite some time. Um, but um, I'm not quite sure that anyone sort of makes the exact same uh, differentiation I, I draw here. So those three levels or layers I differentiate here are um, first, uh, 
what you can you can see religion the term religion being used to mean a particular system of faith and worship um, which is sort of a, a very basic meaning and this has been has been this is a very old usage uh, can be seen in the European Middle Ages mm-hmm. um, you know uh, Christianity as this one system of, of faith and worship um, now I think different from this although of course they're all related is religion in the singular, uh, which came to be understood as a potentially universal human characteristic, capability, or inclination. Um, so it's not so much a system of faith and worship institutionalized, but it's it's really something inherent, something anthropologically inherent in, in humans. And this idea is actually fairly recent. I think it's an enlightenment idea that doesn't really get spelled out uh, until the late 18th century. Um, and then you have, uh, still different from those other two, you have a third meaning, which is uh, religion as a societal subsystem in terms of system theory or a field, if you want to put it in Bourdieu terms, or say a social sphere as opposed to others, right? Um, and again, this uh, comes out of the other two perhaps to some degree, but it's not, it's not uh, naturally a corollary of them. It's, it's a separate meaning, really, a separate layer of meaning. And why do I make this differentiation? Well, I emphasize these different meanings because I think they are separate and their confluence in one concept in Europe is really historically contingent. In other words, we, we may find outside of Europe or perhaps in previous times, similar concepts that convey just one of these levels or layers. And so then we would have some kind of equivalent to religion but that doesn't necessarily mean that it must be a religion with all three layers of meaning present at the same time, right? And so this opens up the possibility to look for earlier enunciations of functional equivalence to religion without uh, having the whole, the whole, you know, all three layers at the same time and saying, and, and always having to say that we need to have exactly this meaning when we look 500 years back uh, in Japan or whatever. But even if we only find one, it might, may already be meaningful and uh, may have an impact on what, what's happening later. And that's, of course, what, exactly what I, what I do in chapter one of my book. Excellent. Yeah, that, really, that is really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, so in chapter one, you explore the impact of the Japanese encounter with Christianity in the early modern period through exploring terms used to refer to what later came to be called religion uh, in the 19th century. These were ho, or literally law, kyo, literally teaching, and shu, literally sect. Could you describe the conceptual and intellectual shifts that take place in the early modern period and what their significance is for the argument of your book? Right. So in, in a nutshell, because obviously what's going on is, is a bit complicated and we have quite a long time span that we're talking about here. Um, <laughs> that, that, as I just mentioned, uh, I, my, my main contention is that there were indeed conceptions of at least a part of the modern understanding of religion that predate the 19th century. So when Japanese, then in the 1860s, 70s, encountered the Western term religion in Western languages, they already had at least one of the three layers of meaning, and they could relate the, 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 new, you know, the new words that they encountered more easily to something from their indigenous knowledge order. So concretely, this was mainly the result of the encounter with Christianity, which is why I look at the Tokugawa period, especially, or start so in the middle of the 16th century. Um, because up to the 16th century, when people were talking about uh, you know, 
teachings, whatever, religions plus alpha in, in the plural, they would usually write about, they, they would usually write kyo or oshie, that is teachings. Um, but that could be, could be, could encompass quite a broad range of, you know, entities uh, or bodies of thought or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and certainly not just religions. Religions would probably, what we mostly understand as religions today would certainly be among those, but they could also be, you know, whatever, whatever else, uh, kind of secular teachings, uh, it could be more from the pedagogical uh, aspect or, you know, educational teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when uh, Buddhists encounter Christianity from the 1550s onwards, there is apparently, and you, see, you can see this in the sources, there's almost immediately a re- realization that this is something new. This is something that is so similar to us, i.e. Buddhists, uh, and in contrast to other teachings we, we've had all along, that we, we, need, we need some kind of new language to talk about this, or at least we talk about this differently. And so you get new umbrella terms. People start talking about, uh, you already mentioned this, the, the whole of modern hōritsu, which, of course, not only means law, but also dharma, mm-hmm. um, the, the translation word, the usual translation for the Sanskrit dharma, um, and so, all of a sudden, you have uh, Japanese authors writing about uh, several or different or plural whole, and what they mean is Christianity and Buddhism, uh, possibly something else, but they don't talk about this. And now, the, the most interesting thing about this, from my point of view, is that you never, almost literally never, find Confucianism or Shinto included in this. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear that there's something new going on, uh, new differentiation is is taking is taking shape, and it it uh, groups together Buddhism and Christianity for uh, various purposes. Uh, most obvious being that they deal with death and the world beyond and everything that that entails, and it, it excludes uh, all or almost all of the other teachings or cure that used to be sort of grouped along for most purposes uh, with with Buddhism, and. Uh, perhaps even more significantly, uh, not only Ho, which is admittedly uh, the major umbrella term that you see around 1600, you also find Shu, the, the sect, um, uh, used in a similar way. And why is this more uh, exciting? Because, of course, this is the character that then came to combine with Kyo to form Shu Kyo much later on. So you don't find that, that, that combination, shukyo, until the 1860s, but you find sort of a, a new, this shu part is filled with a new meaning, apparently, uh, around 1600, um, namely, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the sectarianness, if, if you will. So you, you'll find it used to refer to either Buddhism and Christianity, or you find it referred to the various sects of Buddhism plus Christianity or Christian sects. So... Uh, and again, uh, there is there's some uh, some um, peripheral examples where, where you find Shinto referred to as a shoe, um, but usually that's actually already done sort of in, as, a, as a conscious emulation of the previous coining of the term for Buddhism and Christianity. Someone who's trying to say, well, Shinto also has this shoey quality, right? This this sectarian quality. So I now write about the Shinto shoe, but that's really it's a very minor thing happening. And I don't think Confucianism's ever called a shoe. So what I'm trying to say is that um, in the in the what I previously said about the three layers or levels of religion, um, I think that the first one, 
um, is is already uh, taking shape here in the in the, in the 17th century. Um, so it's to some degree pre prefigured, and then people in the 19th century could sort of latch onto that, could make use of that, and could say, well, you know, we've been we've been having this this category not clearly defined, but in actual usage, we've been having this category of things that are shoe-like, shoe techies, so to speak. And now we see this new word religion. Uh, it's all over the place uh, where we go to Europe, North America. And obviously this is sort of it. Why not sort of take the shoe and, and then make a new word out of that? And nobody, nobody discusses it in, in those very words, but I think that's what's going on. Great, thank you. That really helps in in setting up, uh, you know, the rest of the chapters. Uh, now, before we discuss uh, chapter two, I think this might be a good time to discuss Shimaji before we explore the role he plays in the emergence of shukyo as a term for religion uh, in the late nineteenth century. I was wondering if you could give the listeners a brief biography, um, and in doing so, could you also talk about his upbringing in the domain of Choshu, uh, which you discuss in the introduction as well as the history of Jodo Shinshu, which you explore in chapter two, and explain what their relevance is to Shimaji's conceptual framework. Okay, so this is somewhat of a tall order now. <laughs> you're, you're, you're asking me to, to, uh, to talk about the history of Jodo Shinshu <laughs> uh, on top of everything else. But let's start with Shimaji. Shimaji is actually interesting because he was quite unremarkable in, in many ways. He was not a great scholar, um, he was more or less sort of the right man at the right time. Um, and also he is really important, uh, I think a, a figure of major importance, really only the 1870s. And he ceases to be, uh, he, he continues to be of some significance in Buddhist circles until his death in 1911. But he's really not, not a very, very prominent figure. And also he's quite unknown, in, largely unknown in Japan, I'd say, uh, unless you talk to people who study modern Buddhism, uh, so really like experts on modern Buddhism, most people will not have heard of him or only very, very vaguely. There was no biography uh, about him until 2011. We now have two books that sort of carry his name, two Japanese books that carry his, his name in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's still not, not, a, not a very prominent figure at all. Um, so he was born in 1838, and he is um, he, he inherits a temple from his father. He doesn't want to attend to the temple duties. Uh, his, his interest is not in sort of the ministry, but he wants to learn. And like you, you find this in biographies of scholar priests uh, again and again, he's, he tries to to evade his responsibilities uh, at home uh, and and runs off to to learn at academies and schools here and there. Um, but he doesn't even he doesn't even attend the the the, the, uh, the, the central academy of his of his sect in Kyoto at any time. So it's more you know the, the provincial some provincial academies. There's no really no, no famous uh, priests or teachers he studies under. Um, but he does he does get a solid grounding, and then he's, he's more of a more of an of an activist and really a bureaucrat, if you will, because he he then. Uh, in the early 1870s, ends up in the, the central administration of his sect, the, the Nishi Honganji, uh, in Kyoto, and is a sort of mid-ranking administrator there. Um, and that's basically it, right? Uh, he remains. Uh, this is basically the position he remains in, and he, he does do some remarkable things. He, he uh, founds a school for girls at a relatively early point in time, uh, in, in the 1880s, um, but. 
he was he was quite a not a revolutionary, but he was quite a, a you know a, a radical reformist uh, and sort of sort of seemingly progressive, I guess, which is not the right term, but it, it, I, I think it must have felt progressive to his uh, contemporaries in the 1870s. But he he basically doesn't change his persuasion, and he ends up being quite a conservative by the end of his life, uh, which is simply due to a change, I think, in the circumstances, not to a change in himself. Uh, Japan advances so rapidly, uh, you know, uh, the modernization, the westernization, and he basically stays where he was in the 1870s, which was really at the very uh, front back then, but now he's, he's, a, he's a conservative figure. Um, and, he, you know, he, he never publishes a real book, I guess, so he's not really, he's not really someone you want to you study if you are into history of ideas uh, narrowly. Um, so, and of course that makes him, I mean, if, if you were, there, there would already have been probably a book on him, right? And I, I couldn't have written it. So it was actually um, good for me that, that he was so unremarkable in, in so many ways, except for this very short span of time in the early 1870s, where he's really, really important. And I think we'll, we'll get to that in, in, in a bit. Um, now you asked about Choshu his uh, geographic upbringing, and the Jodo Shinshu, um, the, the sect to which he belonged uh, basically from birth. Um, mm. And then he does become a priest and a, and a temple priest, except, as I said, he kind of shuns the responsibilities that, that come with those. So Choshu has three significances, I think, which are uh, ranged from, from the trivial to the more complex. The, the most trivial is that it's obviously the birthplace of many of the political leaders of early Meiji Japan. You have the, the Choshu faction, right? that uh, sort of they, they run half the government together with, with the Satsuma people uh, in, after 1868. And Shinoji actually knew some of them personally. So this is something, you know, in terms of Kone, uh, that really makes a difference, um, I think, uh, in, in, in those years, in those early uh, reformist years after 1868. Um, the second point is that um, Choshu had a, uh, that the, 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 the Jodo Shinshu in Choshu had a bit of a special position. Uh, they had a, um, uh, in, in, in the past, they had been a political threat for the for the domain lord. I mean, this was back in the 17th century, uh, 16th century, excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. But it meant that the domain lords, the, the Mori, uh, took precautions against uh, further disturbances, future disturbances, by forcing all Shinshu temples within the domain to swear allegiance to the Nishi Honganji temple in Kyoto, which was a quite an, an unusual measure at the time. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, there was there was a very tight control of uh, Buddhism in in the domain, and uh, also um, sort of um, a, a a conscious uh, direction towards uh, national things. Right? They they were subordinated to, to the to the central national temple in Kyoto. And that meant that they were sort of more naturally aware of what, what was going on at, at the center. Um, and uh, in, indeed, uh, Chucho produced more activist priests than other regions. Um, and uh, people were on the side, priests were on the side, on the anti-Bakfu side in the 1860s in the, in the civil wars. Um, and so that, there was apparently some connection to that. Uh, to the sort of ma- mainstreaming of temples within the within the domain towards the national center, and and the third point about uh, Choshu is that um, that there there were especially bitter 
uh, fights between uh, domainal bureaucrats and and uh, and representatives of, of religion. Let's say there there were. Uh, a couple of people at, at the head of the domainal uh, administration, this is in the first half of the 19th century, that tried to do away with what they considered illicit shrines and temples mm-hmm. um, and, um, you know, sort of heretic or heterodox for whatever reason. And so uh, there, there was a, quite a wave of closing down temples and shrines. So this was uh, an anti-Shinto and Buddhist wave. Uh, mm-hmm. In the 1820s and 1830s, um, and even into the 1840s, and several thousand uh, shrines and temples and religious buildings, statues were were shut down, closed, destroyed. Uh, even you know predating the famous Haibutsukishaku movement of the 1860s. So you, you could say there was a politicized atmosphere into which Shimoji was was born, and it, it's, you know in, in the in the years he, he was raised uh, in, in Shosho. So this is sort of the, the geographic geopolitical background, if you will. The other question concerns the Jodo Shinshu. Now, this is a very large and complex topic, and I, I don't think I want to go <laughs> uh, into the whole depth. So, again, <laughs> again I have, have three points. I'll, I'll try to be succinct here. Uh, but the first, again, is fairly trivial. Um, uh, the, the Jodo Shinshu had good connections to the political leaders, um, uh, especially one uh, some of the political revolutionaries of the era. So uh, just as as through the through the geographical connection of Choshu, there was a there were there were, there was some conne uh, between some of the Jodo Shinshu leaders and some of the future uh, leading politicians of the early Meiji period. Um, then the more interesting points are that um, there was a long tradition within Jodo Shinshu to argue that the invocation of Amida Buddha uh, was incompatible with worshiping Kami. And there's some discussion in the secondary literature on whether this is more sort of a discursive artifact or something that was reality, you know? (laughs) Did Jodo Shinshu adherents really not worship Kami or was it more of of a trope by Jodo Shinshu elites um, this is a bit uh, unclear, but it doesn't make all that much of a difference for my purposes because the, the trope was there and it was certainly seized upon in the early Meiji period. Um, so that, that there was a rhetoric that was associated with the Shinshu, a rhetoric of Shinshu uniqueness in terms of um, especially distance to Shinto, distance to Kami worship that was uh, immediately emphasized in the, in the Meiji period. I think it predates it, but it was certainly there and then seized upon by the likes of, of Shimaji. And uh, the anti-Shinto stance, I think, we'll, we'll return to that later when, when we come to Shimaji's arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, and this is perhaps the most interesting and most complex point, is that um, it has been argued again in modern times, certainly, that the idea of full reliance on the power of Amida Buddha as the only way toward awakening, as Shindan argued, that this is, uh, that you can call this, um, meaningfully call this faith or, or trust. And of course, there is the, the term Shinjin, the trusting heart in Amida mm-hmm. that Shindan uses and other Shinshu authors have been using since Shindan. Um, the question now is if if this is really meaningfully translated as, as faith, uh, mm-hmm. 
or if our, you know, the, 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 when we say faith and all the baggage that it has uh, from Christianity, obviously the Christian background, whether that isn't something completely different. There's uh, lots of debate on this, which sort of gets into th th theological waters, which is something that I, that I don't, don't touch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, again, I think uh, whatever your, your position is on this, whether there is a religiosity of uh, interior interiority in Shindan's theology uh, or in then even the Shinshu practice over the following centuries. It's certainly something that uh, authors in the 19th century, in the second half of the 19th century, could draw upon. It, it was, was readily available, um, mm -hmm. you know, both in terms of substance and in terms of language and, and rhetoric. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the Shinjin, the, the Shinjiru, the Shin, the Shinko was there, the idea that faith is somehow or something that you now could associate with that, with that uh, term faith in Western languages uh, mm -hmm. uh, is something central to Shinshu. That, that was out there and arguably um, that explains why Shinshu authors and Shimaji, sort of the very first among them, uh, were uh, in, in the earliest wave of Buddhist reform, inner Buddhist reform, uh, picked up, um, you know, uh, what was sort of offered to them in Western discourses and used, used those uh, offerings to, to, to uh, re rework them uh, for their own agendas in the Japanese context, um, especially this connection through the, through the faith and the, sort of the heart of the individual. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't buy the argument, I think it is, it is uh, quite a far-fetched sort of modernist argument that that Shinran already had a conception, uh, a modern conception of an individual, and you find Shinshu theologians claiming that today. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was there, uh, it was available as sort of material to work with in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much for dealing so brilliantly with my <laughs> cluster of questions. So I really appreciate that. Um, so in chapter two, you discuss the emergence of Shukyo or sect teaching in Shimaji's writings to talk about Buddhism in contrast to Shinto for which he uses Jikyo or civic teaching. Um, could you discuss the significance of the debate surrounding policies related to religion in the early 1870s? Yes, it's hard to overestimate the importance of these policies to the story that I am writing in the book, to the story of basically reconceiving religion in, in that period. All of, all of Shimaji's writings at the time were prompted by those policies. Um, and from the Buddhist point of view, it basically all boils, boils down to what one could call the Shinto problem. Um, they, they had a problem with a new... Shinto that was um, put forth uh, by the new government. And this was basically why they came up with all sorts of ideas to, to counter, to, to solve the problem. The, the main background was, I mean, at, at the very, very, very beginning, 1867, 1868, there was actually the attempt to establish Shinto as a, as a full-blown state religion, uh, which was a very, very short-lived attempt. And then the government came up in 1871, 1872 with the so-called Great Promulgation Campaign, the Daikyo Senpu Undo that uh, Helen Hardiker has written on uh, many years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, basically no longer trying to establish Shinto solely as a national religion, but, but trying to establish some kind of new more or less national creed. They're, they're a bit vague about this. That is mostly Shinto, but not exclusively. So they draw in the Buddhists in, in that effort. 
uh, Buddhist priests have to uh, proselytize about this this strange new uh, great teaching, the Daikyo, with, which is which is uh, very ill defined. Um, but what they sort of uh, do get from the government sounds very Shintoistic, Shinto centered. So uh, they're in this very unusual situation. Of course, then there is the Haibatsu Kishaku, uh, the, the iconoclastic movement against Buddhism uh, in, in the late 1860s. So it's a very volatile situation for Buddhism. Buddhism is under threat from, from several directions. And um, all, most of these uh, really uh, have Shinto in the background, a, a sort of re- resurgent, uh, newly self-conscious uh, Shinto that manages to infiltrate the government, um, the, the, the very early Meiji government. Um, so all of these, uh, all, much of the Buddhist writing of around 1870, including Shimaji's, uh, takes its cue from this situation, from the, the perceived Shinto problem. And so uh, Shimaji sets out to try to, to argue why Shinto is not useful for the state, why Buddhism is much more useful to the state. And this is where he discovers religion, right? Um, where he discovers religion as very useful, as a very useful category, because uh, the way he argues it, and he's sort of backed by how he understands this Western term, um, Shinto cannot be a full-blown member of this of this great new concept of religion, of this category, because it lacks certain elementary characteristics, right? A founder, a scripture, and so on. Buddhism, in contrast, is certainly on par uh, with the, the other prototypical members of this category, like Christianity. And for a modern nation state, of course, you need something that looks like what the Western nations have, i.e. Christianity. And Shinto cannot fulfill this function properly. So he finds it, it's basically a very instrumental uh, argument, right? Um, he, he tries to find something against Shinto and he uses all sorts of arguments and one of the most successful ways to, to put uh, forth this point is through this idea, through this category of religion. And this is why he emphasizes it, not the other way around. So the, 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 the political debate, the policies of the new government are really crucial in explaining why Shimaji and other Buddhist authors come up with the idea, with their ideas about religion, what does belong to religion, what doesn't, and so on. Um, you can't really explain the situation without taking your cue from from the political situation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, So in chapter three, you argue, and I quote, contrary to the existing secondary literature on Shimaji, Shukyo was formed in opposition not to politics, but to civic teaching, end quote. Could you expand on this by describing the multiple shifts this term goes through from the first half of the Tokugawa era uh, until the 1870s? Um, And could you explain how this differs from the European context? So again, this uh, sounds like some, somewhat of a tall order <laughs> to me, uh, but the European context is, of course, incredibly complex, and many people have written on this that, that uh, actually know the story and have read the sources in contrast to me. Um, my take on this is that, of course, in Europe, the term religion in various languages has been around, had been around for a really, really long time, even mm-hmm. if not in today's meaning, as I have previously tried to, to argue. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Jonathan Z. Z. Smith has shown how the global plurality of religions or a new consciousness of the global plurality of religions since the age of discovery, um, so starting in the 15th century, has led to a first shift 
so tectonic shift in the understanding of religion, which was now increasingly used in the plural. Although, to be precise, it was mostly not the, the, the word religio or whatever religion, uh, but it was mostly the word sects that was used uh, to, to describe you know, a plurality of religion, secta in, in, in Latin. Um, and then, uh, of course, the, 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 the almost concurrently, you have the Reformation in Europe and the split of Christianity. So the, the main reason to think about religions in the plural is um, this situation in Europe of a, of a divided Christianity at the same time that in the New World, in South America, you find different forms of religiosity. So this is basically the, the kickoff for the European context to think about religion in a new way, think about religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, uh, also prompted, arguably prompted by the... Reformation, uh, new attention is given in Protestant circles to the individual side of the Christian religion uh, by, say, Luther's argument for faith alone, sola fide, um, which then becomes systematized in the course of the 18th century, say, with Schleiermacher being as one of the most conspicuous figures that, that then mm-hmm. really makes a case for uh, religion as this innate faculty of man and its its uh, importance and so on and so forth. Even then, um, religion now was frequently used. You have books that are titled so and so of religion, but not still not in the full sense of today. Um, so, as I said previously, we have those three layers, and uh, certainly by 1800, we have in the European context the plurality of religions. We have the interiority of religion. But I don't think we have uh, the, the domain, uh, religion's own domain yet. Uh, I, th- I think you'd be hard-pressed to find people actually talking about that in, in 1800. Wow. And the decisive processes that led to the terms coinage in today's sense uh, don't happen until the late 19th century, when religion is especially challenged existentially by the new materialism of the natural sciences. Um, of course, that the, you know the natural sciences had, had been there before, but they hadn't really challenged religion head on. Many of those sort of older um, uh, natural scientists, you know, worked to show for, for the greater glory of God. If you think of Newton and so on, but now you have people who are really challenging uh, the explanatory value of, of religion in a very very fundamental way. Um, really, only the second half of the nineteenth century. And only now you find a clear sense of religion emerging as a sphere of life opposed to, say, science, right? And religion is reduced to being able to explain only only narrowed down parts of the human existence and no longer sort of all of creation and so on. This is, I think, in a nutshell, very, very, very briefly, what's happening in Europe, uh, the, the big picture. Now, one, I think, for us Asianists, Exciting conclusion of this view of the development in Europe is that that decisive last step that I just sketched really only took place at the end of the 19th century, the time of already full-blown globalization, which means that Asia, especially Japan, is already part of that story. You know, it's already in, in the picture. When, when people write, Europeans write about religion at the end of the 19th century, they already know about Japanese Buddhism, for example. So it, you, you, go, you, can, you can argue whether uh, the, the Japanese that are 
writing about religion are really part of the conversation, but it's certainly already possible. And actually, I, I do think that, that, they, that they are part of that, but that's a slightly different, different story. Um, now, uh, you, you kind of phrased your question differently. You asked me to, uh, you know, for, for, the, for the Japanese side, the multiple shifts the term religion goes through from the first half of the Tokugawa era until the 1870s. Of course, there wasn't really much in the Tokugawa era. There are those precedents that I talked about earlier, but there isn't really this term that goes through multiple shifts yet. So um, I think the relevant part of the story really does happen in the 1870s. Um, you, have, you have those precedents, you have, the, you have the plurality in those earlier terms, you have the sense of interiority perhaps by the Shinshu people, um, but then the crucial third layer of meaning, the sense of domain, is really developing almost at the same time as it is in Europe, which is kind of not the usual way you, you think about this happening. But I think it's really a global, global concurrence here, um, whether it's, it's, a, it's a dialogue, it's a different story or a conversation, but it's certainly a, a, a con, con, concurrence in that, in that sense, a conjuncture, if you will. Um, happening at the same time for probably similar reasons too, right? I mean, the, the, the challenge of the natural sciences was there in Europe as much as it was in Japan, where uh, Darwinism is discussed from very early on, uh, from the 1870s onwards. You've seen Clinton Godard's book on that, I'm, I'm sure, um, Darwinism in Japan. So uh, I think the issues are actually quite related, uh, despite uh, the fact that Christianity drives the conversation in Europe and it doesn't in Japan, but... Um, mm -hmm there um, so uh, so th there, there's there's a less complex story certainly in Japan uh, not those multiple shifts you can, you can see in Japan in Europe due to the long history of the term um, but then at the end of the 19th century the stories really converge in that sense great thank you so much again for for answering that um, so brilliantly um, so in, in chapter four, you detail Shimaji's trip to Europe in 1872, and you argue that, quote, it turns out to be difficult to match Shimaji's experiences in Europe with his intellectual positions, end quote. Could you discuss the significance of his encounter with the scholarship of the famous French philologist Ernest Renan and German liberal theology through the less well-known Emile Gustave Lisko during his time in Europe? Mm -hmm. Well, this is really my favorite chapter of the book, <laughs> in a sense, because it's the only one where I have really a new sort of uh, empirical discovery of, of new sources and a new context. Um, uh, there is in all the Japanese scholarship on Shimaji that, that German conversation partner there has never been identified, for example, and so I think I could really show a new context here. And that chapter has also been published in Japanese in the journal of Shukyo Kenkyu um, because I had this new, new material that I could, I could present. Now, the, the background of the trip is really interesting because I'm sure that most listeners will be very familiar with the Iwakura mission that left in December 1871 and arrived in Europe in London in August 1872. They, of course, traveled through the U.S. first. Shimaji and the um, Jodo Shinshu travel group uh, to Europe were actually supposed to accompany the Iwakura mission, but then they were delayed by some reasons, and they arrived in Paris in April 1872. But interestingly, they're also in London in August 1872, at the same time as the Iwakura mission, and in fact, they meet up. So uh, a few of the Buddhist priests meet up with a few of the, the leaders of the Iwakura mission, and they discuss 
indeed religious policy, actually. Um, we have some interesting accounts of that. Um, after August 1872, um, Shimaji only spends a short time in London and then moves to Berlin, where he stays on for three months, and then he goes back to Paris. And in February of the next year, 1873, he uh, embarks on his return trip over southern Europe, Egypt, and then India, obviously very significant for a Buddhist, and he's back in Japan in July 1873, so a little over a year later. Um, and this was a Nishi Honganji group. This was a, a, a travel company, five people from the Nishi Honganji, the Western Honganji Temple, and the uh, competing Eastern, the Higashi Honganji Temple, also organized a group that also toured Europe just a few months later. Um, now, what, what did these people do in Europe? And uh, thankfully, we have a travel diary by left behind by uh, Shimaji, and we have uh, some shorter documents by some of the other travelers um, of both of those Nishi and Higashi Honganji groups. And it's really, really funny to see that they did lots and lots of sightseeing. They went to botanical gardens, zoos, and operas all the time. Um, and that I think 95% of the people they meet are actually Japanese. You'd be surprised to see how many Japanese are already living in Paris in 1872. It's really incredible. And of course, it's a who and who's who of later prominent politicians, artists, whatever, authors. Um, so they, they really do some very heavy, heavy duty networking um, in, in, while in Europe. But of course, for uh, my purposes, what was more interesting was their significant encounters with Europeans. And Shimaji meets with several Catholic priests in Paris, um, which he doesn't uh, name, unfortunately. Uh, but we can identify some of them. He meets with uh, someone called Léon de Rony, who was uh, uh, at that time a prominent Orientalist uh, at various Paris universities and actually one of the few Europeans who could speak Japanese, although he had never been to Japan. He was a linguist and had mm -hmm. learned Japanese. And so this is someone they, they mingle with simply because they could converse with him in, in Japanese. Um, and then in Berlin, there is this guy you already mentioned, this uh, Emil Gustav Lisko. Um, now, next to the latter, and I will come to him in, in, in a second, Shimaji's main intellectual encounter in Europe was Ernest Renan, as you already mentioned. He didn't meet him in person, but he read his main work, or perhaps his best-known work, The uh, Life of Jesus, which was published in 1863. Um, so just nine years earlier, quite quite new book. Um, Renan, of course, not a theologian, but a biblical scholar. And in the terms of the time, an Orientalist, he was a specialist on, on the biblical lands on, on the Near East. And what he found in Renan was, um, so or what, basically they, 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 they encounter Christianity already through its, through its most advanced criticism, Right. Um, because what they what they find in Renan is a is a radical historicizing picture of a religion that tries to do away with the aspects of Christianity as a revealed religion. Um, you know, really an attempt to historicize it thoroughly um, by showing in great detail uh, who could have authored the biblical books when, how they were changed over time. So it's really Renan was really and he was. He became famous for that, of course. He was really demolishing the idea of the, 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 the revealed what the Bible is as a revealed, divinely revealed word, and was showing that it was authored by human beings. 
in a process that we can actually re reconstruct. Um, and as Renan put it, he, he wanted to banish miracle from history. And this was something that apparently struck a chord with, with Shimaji, um, who, who writes, um, unfortunately, very unsystematically, but who writes uh, similar things in the following years in many of his petitions and other shorter texts in which he sort of sees Shinto as the, as the equivalent of the Catholic Church that, that tries to stick to, to the divinely revealed word and tries to portray Shinshu as sort of the, the Protestants that, that are uh, more or less enlightened and see, see behind the, 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 the conceit of revelation and argue historically. Or he also, of course, he wants to change Shinshu in that way, I guess you could, should also say. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a similar impact by this other guy, the German minister, Lisko, whom Shimaji met at least 14 times, according to his diary. So he has a really intense conversation with him, who was, uh, again, not, not a very famous figure, but a liberal churchman, and um, who, who furthered Bible criticism from within the church. So, you know, he's, he's not a scholar, he's not an Orientalist, he's, he's a, a, a minister, and he... Uh, and so the, the, I think what, what's uh, new here perhaps is that now Bible criticism is, is coming from within the church even. Um, and uh, this is someone who argues literally that the natural sciences have in today's times replaced the worldview of the biblical authors and we need to adapt to that. We as the church need to adapt to that. There remains no place for miracles um, so if we want to still remain relevant in this world, we have to adapt. Uh, we have to recognize the, 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 um, the relevance of the natural sciences and the, the reduced relevance of, of religion, I guess. And this is also something that Lisko finds extremely insightful and that he, that he reacts to. And what's really interesting is that, again, this is not something that's sort of already happened in the West and the Japanese then then take up. But when, when, when Shimaji arrives in Berlin, uh, this is in, in the very thick of things. This is just happening. Lisko is in, in the middle of a conflict in 1872. He is threatened to be removed from the church. There is a big fight going on. Uh, theologians siding with him in open letters to the church, uh, uh, conservative circles uh, scheming against him. And this all of this happens exactly in 1872 when Shimaji is there. So um, what you could what you could argue is that um, you know uh, the, the the Japanese are experiencing this as it is as it is happening as a new concept of religion is emerging in Europe. Really, they're they're, they're almost part of that process. Uh, at least they're witnessing it firsthand. Um, and I think this is again something you probably can't just say about religion, but you can you can argue a bit bit more broadly that you know Western concepts, Western ideas. At that time, the, the latter, latter decades of the 19th century were not there ready-made for the Japanese to take up and just apply them, but they, they were in the, in the making themselves, and Japanese witnessed that, those processes and participated in them partially. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, it was also my favorite chapter to read, so I'm <laughs> was for you as well. Thank you so much. Um, so in chapter five, you focus on secularization and the secular religion's other and argue that state Shinto and Japanese religious policy during this time was neither incomplete secularization, this is something you mentioned earlier in the mm -hmm. conversation, and nor was it, quote, prey to alleged Euro-American political strategies, end quote. Rather, you argue that, um, 
quote, secularization may be said to have been reconceptualized in a similar fashion to religion in a process of negotiation between indigenous agency and contemporary political agenda, end quote. Could you expand on what you mean by this? Sure. Um, indeed, as you said, I have previously mentioned, I think when we talked about Isomai Junichi, that uh, some people see secularization as something that was somehow incomplete in modern Japanese history, uh, somehow lacking, um, and that there is sort of some ideal of secularization that was somehow not, not fulfilled. Um, I'm, I'm just reading, incidentally, the, the book by... Uh, Jolyon Thomas, uh, Faking Liberties, which, which uh, talks about exactly this point. Really, really good book. I can, I can recommend yes, it. fantastic. <laughs> um, so in this chapter, I, I go, go back a bit at, at an earlier period than I think Jolyon's looking at. Um, and uh, I think secularization, uh, or perhaps related terms, were on the surface uh, new terms, just like religion, uh, seemingly imported from the West or translated from Western languages. But just as was the case with religion, you find that there was both a clear Japanese agenda in employing these new terms, as well as terminological precedents that make it seem much less new than they seemed at first sight. So to come to those, those two points, uh, first the, the agenda, um, if you look at how these terms were employed, you'll find that one of the first who talks about secularization as a process was Fukuzawa Yukichi, who did not uh, see, he did not employ it, uh, apply it, excuse me, to, to the Japanese case, but saw it when, when describing what's, what's hap- what happened in the West, um, but then argued implicitly that in the, for a full modernization, as he wished it for Japan, this also needs to happen. We need to have this thing that the West went through and that made the West the, the superior uh, civilization that it is, that is, we need somehow to move away from these pernicious uh, superstitions and religions even. Um, so there is a clear agenda, even in the very first uh, usage of the terminology. Um, and you also find uh, a clear agenda in uh, the other examples I um, use in that chapter, which are Inoue Tetsujiro, who around 1900, um, uh, sees or finds secularization in the Japanese history of ideas, namely in the uh, neo-Confucian thinkers of the Tokugawa period, um, and s- sort of draws a parallel between uh, how philosophy emancipated itself from religion in the West and how the neo-Confucian thinkers contributed to the emancipation of Japanese philosophy. And obviously this is something he's very affirmative of. And you'll even find it in Maruyama Masao in his early writings on the intellectual history of the uh, Tokugawa period, um, later published in English translation as uh, studies in the intellectual history of Tokugawa Japan, um, where he makes a similar argument to Inoue Tetsujido, uh, that is, he, he sort of uh, sees the, the, the um, proto-modernizing uh, elements in early modern Japanese thought in secularizing uh, tendencies, again, among certain new Confucian thinkers. So it's something that's intimately associated with modernization. And of course, for um, many Japanese thinkers for a long time, that was something uh, entirely positive, right? Um, and Maruyama is, uh, of course, with good reason, associated with the so-called modernists. Um, this is one expression of that. 
And the second point about the terminological precedence is also really interesting in this case because uh, the Japanese case, of course, for secularization is uh, sezoku or sezoku-ka, uh, or uh, in the Meiji period, sometimes it's, it's just zokka, so the process of zokkuization. Um, and both of these elements, se and zoku, and sometimes combined, sometimes not, are uh, firmly established terms in the Buddhist intellectual tradition are really going back a long time uh, with uh, precedents in Sanskrit um, pointing to, well, the, the, the worldly, right? Just as, of course, set means the world. Um, and while we do not have a clear uh, terminological opposition of the secular versus the religious, of course, we do have um, functionally similar, partially functionally similar oppositions that use these terms, um, se or, or zoku. Um, possibly the most prominent, the most relevant, again, for our context being the shin zoku nitai formula, which was especially prominent in the Jodo Shinshu and came to be used by the end of the Tokugawa period um, in the sense that the, that the shintai was the basically the, the true faith um, in Amida Buddha, the true Shinshu teaching, and the Zokutai referred to the worldly and political realm, including existing social norms. And what the formula was used for was to say that the both that the two complement each other and sort of one cannot live without the other. So it was used to affirm the political order, the rainy political order. Uh, but what is important for our purposes is that there is the this this first step of differentiating the two to begin with, right? Before sort of saying the two belong together and combining them. And then analytically, first, they have to be separated and thought of as two, two distinct elements. And so you find an understanding of Zoku that uh, points to a, a worldly realm that is somehow not connected to issues of faith and salvation uh, and maybe complementary or whatever, but it can be in opposition to. So Again, you have a kind of thinking that's structurally similar and that, that people then can use uh, in the Meiji period and onwards to uh, think about these issues and construct a new terminology. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I know uh, you're incredibly busy with work and with life more <laughs> generally your family so you know i really appreciate you've given uh you know us so much time uh to discuss this book um but before i let you leave could you uh, discuss uh could you tell us about what you're uh working on currently uh and before you answer that question i just want to let the listeners know that later this year we will be discussing theosophy across board uh, boundaries transcultural and interdisciplinary perspectives on a modern esoteric movement um, which was uh, co-edited by yourself and Dr. Julian Strube. Yes, that's right. Um, that book actually just came out in December with State University of New York Press. Um, and I'm really happy that it did come out after many years of work. Um, there are some Japan chapters in there, in fact, um, although I would imagine that for your current listeners, um, the, the Japan crowd, Another new publication is perhaps more interesting. And if you allow, uh, I want to uh, uh, draw your attention to the volume uh, Buddhism and Modernity, Sources from 19th Century Japan, which is due to come out um, 31st March 2021. So at least right now, uh, at the time where we're talking, it hasn't officially come out yet, but I'm holding an advanced copy in my hands. Uh, as That's we great. 
And yeah. this is, I think, a really great volume um, because it's a, it's a source book on <laughs> this period that we're talking about, um, the 19th century modern Japanese Buddhism that we've, we've increasingly had scholarship on, but still, if you compare it to, say, medieval Buddhism or even sort of contemporary Buddhism, I, still, I think it's still understudy, and we don't have all that, all that much material on it and all that many sources. And so here we have a source book with English translations of uh, texts from the 19th century, from mainly the latter part of the 19th century, from leading Buddhist authors of the time in English translation, usually for the first time translated and short introductions. And so this is a really, really great volume that I can recommend. Um, coming out with University of Hawaii Press uh, in just a few days from now. Um, so, and this is co-edited with Orion Klautau uh, of Tohoku University. Um, so this is obviously one thing that I've been working on, but um, what I want to tell you in answer to your question is that I have been pursuing some strands from the Shimaji book that we've been talking about today further in a project that I have called Mahayana in Europe, Japanese Buddhists and their contribution to academic knowledge on Buddhism in 19th century Europe. So basically, I'm sort of turning around and looking at what's happening with understandings of Buddhism in Europe. But what's happening, what impact are the Japanese Buddhists who are starting to come to Europe, as we heard today, and uh, also write uh, in English and French, for example, about Buddhism, what impact are they having on, possible impact are they having on understandings of Buddhism outside of Japan? So we're talking about figures such as Nanjo Bunyu uh, or Takakusu Junjiro, who come to Japan in the 1880s, excuse me, come to Europe in the 1880s and 1890s to study with, for example, Max Müller at, at Oxford, uh, some of the eminent Orientalists, yes. um, Sylvain Lévy in Paris, um, who, who supposedly sort of a conventional story has them as students seeking advice from the eminent masters of European Orientalism and then they learn Sanskrit and Pali. And of mm -hmm. course, it, it, you can't deny that the, that the study of Sanskrit, uh, not to speak of Pali, has basically been non-existent in Japan for, for a long time. Um, and they, they do have to sort of rebuild it or, you know, start from scratch uh, in, in the 19th century. But uh, what you'll find is that, of course, uh, those experts on Buddhism coming to Europe also bring with them uh, lots of interesting information for those European Orientalists. And when you look more closely, you'll find that, indeed, those eminent European Orientalists also learn from their Japanese um, students, uh, so-called students, who of course were, you know, actually not all that young any longer, and were basically young scholars in their own right in, in the Japanese context. Um, so this is really an exciting story of international knowledge exchange uh, in that period where you already have, uh, by all means and purposes, the global exchange. You have uh, Buddhist, the first Buddhist converts emerging in the United States and Europe around 1900. Uh, and you have quite a number of publications on Buddhism. Buddhism becomes more and more uh, a part of overviews uh, over religion more generally. And you'll find that uh, European authors draw upon the, the Japanese uh, publications, uh, usually in English or French, um, to describe Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism or East Asian Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism. So there is actually an impact of those Japanese on the European agenda, if you will, if you want to 
put it in emphatic terms, um, uh, about portraying Buddhism. You know, there's this whole story about the preeminence of the original uh, Buddhism versus later corruptions, uh, where the uh, the idea is that figures such as Müller, uh, you know, were really prejudiced uh, and rejected all later forms of Buddhism. Uh, it's basically the whole of Mahayana Buddhism um, and privileged the original teaching of the original Buddha. And that is all true, but it's also really changing uh, in, in the last decades of the 19th century. Mahayana is becoming much more prominent in, uh, in, in the global reception of Buddhism. And you can see that those Japanese traveling to Europe and writing in English and French and German are really contributing to that. So I think that has not really been acknowledged broadly, and that is something that I'm trying to, to uh, confront head on with, with this project. Fascinating. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, I've come across references of, you know, these people who mm -hmm. studied uh, Max Müller, but um, I haven't seen anybody, you know, focus on that. So that's that's really exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. And maybe in the future, we can also have a discussion on that. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I just want to say thank you one more time and uh, look forward to speaking to you uh, very soon, actually. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you.